Welcome to Through the Trauma Podcast. My name is Amber Larkins, published photographer, storytelling expert, visual artist, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach. This podcast was born from one question. How do I get inspiring stories of triumph out to the people who need to hear them the most? Come with me, enter my world where lives are getting changed, heroes are getting developed, and greatness is being achieved. Hello, and welcome to Through the Trauma Podcast. This is Amber Larkin, your host, and today I have with me Miss Cynthia Patterson. Cynthia is, uh, she's an amazing human. Um, I actually met her through the Nashville Fit Show, and she is a licensed master social worker and a school-based therapist. So she brings a ton of insight to us, and I can't wait to get into her story and hear about her work. Cynthia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Amber. It's an honor to be on here and um, being able to share my story, um, give some insight. Hopefully that, you know, it'll help at least one person. Then I feel very grateful for the opportunity. Awesome. Well, um, I'm super excited to have you on. I know that you and I, we met through the Nashville Fit Show. You come in and we did some photos and um, then you reached out about the podcast and inquired. And once I heard your story, I'm like, this is so awesome. I need to get her on the podcast to tell her story and just to share with the listeners just some of the things that you're doing um, and your why behind what you're doing. So without further ado, you want to just kind of jump in and talk a little bit about your story and, and kind of where you came from and the why behind what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, so like you said, you know, I'm a licensed master social worker and I work as a school-based therapist at a local high school. So I'm working with teenagers, adolescents. Um, I'm also a mom and a bonus mom to two boys. Um, of course, I have a couple fur babies. Um, and really the foundation of my story has to lie with experiencing adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Um, so what that is, is there was a study done in 1995 through 97, I believe, and um, it really talks about um, and focused on experiences throughout childhood. So zero, birth to 18 or 17. Um, so it really focuses on abuse, neglect, and just family or household dysfunction. Um, they actually have like a short survey that um, kind of brought me into the interest of finding out and kind of discovering myself. So I am, you know, I, I grew up in a traditional household. I had a mom, had a dad, and I had a brother who's five years older than I am. Um, so, you know, the tr traditional family um, from the outside looking in, um, it, you know, looked great, you know, traditional family, which was something that um, back when I was little, you know, started to kind of be defined in a different way. But from the outside looking in, we just, you know, we were in the sports and other activities. And um, my dad works as an accountant and my mom was always a stay at home mom. She worked, you know, odd jobs ever once in a while. But once me and my brother came, she really just focused on staying home. So I do like to clarify in my story that, you know, in my, in my childhood, there was never any physical abuse. Um, you know, me and my brother never went without what we needed and, and most of the time what we even wanted. Most of my um, ACEs come from 
kind of emotional abuse, if you will. Um, I have, I had two parents that were, that struggled with addiction. Um, my dad was a avid gambler and an alcoholic and my mom struggled when I was just a little bit older, probably around third grade with prescription drugs and then street drugs. Both of them also have really high ACEs scores. So the higher your ACE score, the more it kind of tells you um, that you're at a higher risk for things like chronic illness, um, mental illness, that sort of thing later, later in life, which is something interesting I'll talk about a little bit later with my mom. But throughout my childhood, you know, not all of it was ugly whenever drugs and alcohol weren't involved. My my family, my parents were very loving parents, um, very um, supportive. But unfortunately, um, that just wasn't often. That wasn't very often that I got that side of them. I really took to my mom and my brother really took to my dad when we were younger. Um, I guess it was just brother, you know, son and dad, mother, daughter kind of thing. Um, but it kind of, that really kind of threw my relationship off with my dad. I never really had one. Um, honestly, until about recently um, when uh, my mom passed. So it was just one of those things where I didn't, I don't know if he knew how to navigate having a daughter and kind of, you know, where to go and what boundaries and stuff like that to, cause he, um, he's a character, but me and him, you know, with that's just kind of how it was. It was me and my mom and it was my brother and my dad, but you know, we were together, but it was just kind of separated. So from an early age, you know, I had a really um, tight bond with my mom. Um, later on, it kind of turned into a codependent relationship, special in its own way, but also got kind of nasty later on and just kind of severe. So whenever I was growing up, probably until around sixth grade, um, mostly good. Um, like I said, didn't have much of a relationship with my dad. It wasn't that it was good or bad. It just kind of wasn't there. It was distant. Um, with my mom, it was really good, but she started getting into, um, a little bit heavier on, on drugs and stuff like that. Um, at the age of 27, she found out she was diagnosed with, um, um, COPD, which, um, if you know anything about COPD, it's, it's kind of like a life sentence. There's no cure for it. Um, there's not enough research behind it or science behind it. Um, so from there on out, you know, she kind of had that over her head. And like I mentioned, both my parents had, um, have their own high ACEs score, you know, their own childhood trauma that they've always dealt well, not they haven't dealt with is the issue. And I learned that from like my grandma and stuff like that. Whenever we would talk about, you know, my, my dad's drinking and stuff like that. And she would kind of say, you know, well, you know, they're, they don't know how to deal with their own problems. So they turn to that stuff to help them. Um, but I seen it always in a negative light, you know, whenever I was in like fourth grade, my, my dad was, um, so under the influence that he fell into our Christmas tree and broke it. And like, <laughs> it was just a whole thing that me and my brother had to witness. And, um, and then there was a lot of fighting between my parents. Um, they met when my mom was 13 and my dad was 17 and, um, they married when my mom turned 17 so they had always been together. I mean, there were kids when they met and they had always been together, but um, they were very toxic, very toxic codependent relationship on each other. They, they were, we seen a whole bunch of fighting. Um, sometimes it was semi-abusive. Um, it wasn't 
too severe, in my opinion. It was maybe like a shove here or, you know, throwing this at him or, you know, is is both of them. Um, so we witnessed that quite a bit growing up. Um, so as far as being able to model that, what a relationship and a marriage should look like, me and my brother, neither, neither of us really knew, you know, anything other than that. Like I said, though, in about sixth grade, my mom and I's relationship kind of um, changed. She got a little bit more into um, drugs, and that's when she started having an affair. Um, she told me everything, and sometimes that was a good thing, and most times it was a bad thing. I was, you know, in sixth, seventh grade, maybe at the latest, but um, she shared that with me. And, you know, it's, you got to keep a secret. You can't tell anyone. And and all that. So that kind of weighed on me. Um, and even though I had a kind of distant relationship with my dad, I knew it wasn't right. And I felt a lot of guilt with keeping that from him. But at the same time, I see my mom so happy that that kind of trumped telling my dad and expressing that to him. Um, so that went on for a couple years until um, about eighth grade, middle of eighth grade, when um, my dad them. Um, and also my brother didn't know I, I wasn't allowed to share that with him. Um, and that was a really messy day. Um, that was a lot of, you know, I, I got blamed even though I was a child. Um, I got blamed for my dad and my brother blamed me. And honestly, I don't think my brother ever truly forgave my mom for that. Their relationship completely shifted after, after that happened. Um, so it's a lot forward. to carry for a child. Yeah, um, it it is. Um, like I like I told you before, you know, um, I feel like my story could have definitely been more severe than it was compared to others' stories. But I knew mine from a young age, you know, mattered. Like something wasn't right. I I shouldn't be going through this stuff as a child. And I learned that um, early on, but I also knew in the back of my head that if I wasn't the one that was going to be taking care of my mom and dad, who was going to, because they're not the way they fight in their relationship, they're not really going to take care of each other. At mm -hmm. least that's what it looked like. Right. So I kind of put aside the wrongdoings that were happening to me and just really focused on trying to be the grown up for them, even as a small child. Mm -hmm. Um, that was, you know, I, but in a way, you know, my parents didn't really see it that way cause they, they couldn't, but they didn't think that, Oh, my daughter's taking care of me right now. They more seen that I was mature for my age. And for many years, I thought that was such a compliment. Like, yes, I am mature for my age. And, you know, that's that's an honor. But it came from me having to take care of them, you know, making sure that um, I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, making sure that they were okay all the time and not focusing on myself. And it became such a, a thing where I felt like I had to be perfect because I, I couldn't have problems because they had enough problems. They had enough on their shoulders. So I couldn't have any problems. I needed to strive to be perfect, you know, my mm -hmm. achievements and um, just everything that has to do with that. So that came on from an early age too, that just chasing perfectionism um, around the time of like seventh, eighth grade, I started playing school sports. 
Um, and whenever I started that, I just remembered looking at uh, my friends and seeing how um, wonderful they are at sports and they're so athletic. They're so beautiful. I had a best friend that, um, you know, when I when I looked at her, you know, she was so skinny and she's petite and she was just good at everything that she ever done and so smart. And um, I seen that and kind of idled her in a way. Um, I, I wanted to be like that, um, which with all the stuff going on in my home life and everything out of control and um, there was nothing I could do to really um, help that situation. Then I started thinking, well, you know, what are the things I can control? Um, maybe not in that perspective, but I was trying to find something that I had some control over in my life. Um, cause obviously I, I couldn't control my dad's drinking. I couldn't control my mom's drug use, um, or her depression. Um, I, I couldn't control that stuff no matter how hard I tried. Um, which that also kind of took a sense of, you know, why can't they get better for me? Um, but, and then it turned into, I'm not good enough for them to actually do something about what they do have in their control. So it kind of paved the way for Cynthia, you need to be, you need to be perfect. Your problems aren't big enough for you to, you know, worry about or, or share with anyone and your, your, your best still isn't good enough. You know, that's kind of paved the way for that mentality. So on top of that, um, I was looking for something that I can control. So around seventh or eighth grade, I started um, restricting my diet a lot. Um, it wasn't until my freshman year of high school that I found my fitness pal, which is a um, eating tracker that you can log your stuff in and whatnot. Um, and I started doing that. And then after I was, you know, doing that, I was restricting calories to about 400 calories a day. Um, I, I love that sense of control so much that, you know, I had, this is when I'm following. So it's keeping my mind distracted about what's going on at home. Um, but it's also giving me that control of what I'm putting in my body. So all that just continued to become more severe. You know, eventually it was um, abusing um, exercise. You know, if I went over even, you know, five calories that day, I would run for miles. Um, to, and I would, for whatever reason in my, in my teenage head, I always wanted, I wanted abs. Like you were fit if you had abs. So I would do hundreds of crunches a day. Like I had a, like a, a manual, um, tracker that I would have that I would like X off how many I'd done for the day and, um, exactly what I'd done. So kind of tracking that exercise, but doing hundreds of repetitions, um, like that was, you know, really doing anything, but, um, the older I got, the more severe it got. Um, I remember very specifically, you know, looking in the mirror and having just kind of images in my head of just like taking scissors and cutting the fat off my stomach specifically. Everywhere else was tiny, um, but it was my stomach that had some extra fat um, and, you know, where your, your love handles are, if you will. Um, I would just kind of pinch those and look at those in the mirror and, you know, just stare at myself in the mirror and just feel honestly disgust from, from what I was seeing. Um, that led into some um, suicidal ideations throughout high school. 
um, a couple of attempts. It was one of those things where if I took some over-the-counter medications, like took a lot of them, if it did kill me, then that was okay. But if it didn't, that just meant that God wanted me here to take care of my parents. Like it was no black and white, no happy medium. It was either it was my time to go or it was there to continue to take care of my parents, not to take care of myself, but them. Um, so look, you know, thankfully those never, you know, fell through. It was always, but it kind of reiterated like, no, your, your purpose. Like I was really trying to find my purpose and that purpose was to take care of them and to make sure that they weren't trying to harm themselves and they weren't, um, doing anything that could hurt them and looking out for them in their best interest. Um, so with the eating disorder in 2011, um, I had been very strict and honestly that was the first time I had ever felt proud of myself was because I was so strict and I was really following that to a T. Um, and then in 2011, my father lost his father and it was very unexpected. Like when, one day he was fine and he was out driving and the next day he was in the hospital and they were saying, you know, it's, it's so bad that we should move him home so that he could pass away in his home. Um, and it just, and that was my father's last parent. He had previously lost his mother, um, about, seven years prior to that, that he was still coping with. So that just kind of set everything off. And to my mother, my dad's dad was always a father figure to her because she never had one grown up. Um, so that relationship was strong. His relationship, my father's relationship with his father was strong. Um, so just all of that happening so suddenly, um, not that death is easy in any way, but um, it really took a hit on their their addictions and coping because that's the only way they knew how was through that outlet. So there was a lot of back and forth, moving back and forth, staying back and forth between our home and my, my grandfather's home. You know, there was a lot of just legal stuff that we was dealing with as far as his, his house and, and whatnot, his belongings. So we were back and forth for about a year. And whenever that first happened, the back and forth and you know, I was still, I was a sophomore, junior in high school at that time. Um, so, I mean, I, I wasn't going buying groceries and all that. My, my parents were, even with my restricted eating, you know, I would send them with a list of what I needed um, and then they would buy it at the store. So all that kind of came to a halt. So it was more so eat what was in the house and it wasn't always that the healthy stuff that I, that I found that was healthy and that I could fit in my diet. So my diet kind of went out the window, you know, I restrict myself to an extent. Um, but if the only thing in the house was to eat was a lasagna that someone had brought to us, um, then that was it, you know? So it got to the point to where, um, I would binge some, um, not to a great extent, but I, w I would binge eat to the point where I was, you know, beyond full. Um, but then an overwhelming amount of guilt would hit me and um, I would use eye drops. I had read on the internet that eye drops, if you, you know, consume them orally, that they make you use the restroom. So I would consume um, a pretty hefty amount of eye drops and that was a very, um, discreet way of getting my parents to buy them for me. 
like, you know, I need, I need eye drops for my eyes. My eyes are getting dry. And I would turn around and, and use them in that way. When I started driving, though, I, I switched to abusing laxatives. I was able to get them on my own. Uh, I was able to go to the store and buy them with my own money from my part-time job. Um, and I remember keeping them in my wallet change purse because I, my parents would never look in there. And I didn't, I definitely didn't want them to find them. Um, but I got to the point with those that I was, you know, heavily abusing laxatives. Um, I remember a time where I ate like a gallon of watermelon because that was the only thing in the house. And I felt so guilty that I took between five and six laxatives and provided that was pretty much the only thing on my stomach other than what I had drank that day. So I just remember countless nights of being in the bathroom floor, couldn't straighten up because of the the sharp pains in my stomach because, you know, nothing was even in there to, um, you know, come out. But, you know, crying, sitting there thinking like, is is this what is going to kill me? Because that's how bad the pain was at that point. So I'd done that for a couple of years um, until one day I had went for a run one morning and due to just the lack of food and abusing laxatives and the, the abusing exercise, you know, I was going on five to seven mile runs um, with nothing on my stomach. I got back to my house and I was sitting there talking to my mom in the kitchen and it was early one morning and I passed out. I just completely hit the floor and when I woke up, you know, she was, you know, was trying to wake me up and, and freaking out and just the fear in her eyes and stuff. You know, she wanted to call 911 and I knew that I would be caught and I didn't want. And to me, I knew it would hurt her if she knew I was going to that great of extent with my eating disorder because she always struggled with an eating disorder and self-image and self-esteem. So I knew that it would just hurt her. and. I probably needed to go to the hospital at that point. Um, Honestly, definitely needed to. But I was so afraid of how the news would affect her. I didn't want her to be upset. I knew she wouldn't be able to handle it and that she would, you know, cope with that in ways that she shouldn't be coping. So, you know, I ended up convincing her that um, I was fine. I was okay. You know, I ate some like a bagel and some yogurt and stuff like that. And, you know, I was feeling fine and physically I was feeling fine. Um, but that was kind of my epiphany to stop doing that, to stop abusing laxatives, but I still abused exercise pretty good, restricted food up until my freshman year of college out throughout high school. I had a high school sweetheart. Um, it was very toxic relationship as well, but, um, at the time I didn't have a lot of friends. My mom really kind of isolated me during high school, verbal abuse, um, mainly because she was, you know, she's on drugs. She wasn't in her right mind. And that's kind of how I always chalked it up to be. Um, it still hurt coming out of my mother's house and my mother's mouth, you know, just that I wasn't appreciative and I don't do anything for them. And, um, I'm always in my room and just, um, you know, she's disappointed in me, you know, that cut like a knife. Um, and among other things that she would just say when she was, um, high off drugs, um, that just kind of kept bottling up. But with that codependent high school sweetheart, he was my outlet, but throughout the entire time, you know, I, I can't remember how many times I caught him cheating, you know, text messages, pictures and about with another girl. And I would always chalk it up to be 
I'm not going to do better than him because he was, he was very popular. He, he was handsome. He played all the sports. He had a, you know, everyone was his friend and everyone loved him. And that was not the case for me. I I kept to myself. Um, I had plenty of acquaintances, you know, at school, you know, I have people to talk to and joke around with and stuff like that. But as far as like genuine friendships, I never, I didn't keep those in high school because I couldn't, you know, one, I couldn't bring them to my house to see that. Um, but two, my, my mom would get immensely jealous of anyone that was special in my life, except that boyfriend for some reason. Um, so I kept on to that, but my freshman year of college, you know, I was just kind of like, I'm, I'm done with, you know, uh, I'm in college now and this is a new chapter of my life and I'm done kind of putting up with the cheating and, and all of that with him. So I ended it and for about a month I was okay. Like I was pretty confident in my decision, but then it kind of all settled in and it was the, I didn't have that support anymore. And I didn't realize like how much, like it, it wasn't good support, but it was enough for me to be able to kind of cope with everything going on in my life. I, I went into a pretty deep depression. Um, I already struggled with depression and anxiety, but I went into um, pretty dark places around that time. I tried to reach out whenever that realization kind of hit me that, okay, well, maybe I made the wrong decision. And at that point, he was like, I don't want anything to do with you. And that was hurtful because it was just kind of like, okay, it took you a month to get over five years. Um, and here I am struggling with it. And so that just kind of reiterated, you know, I'm not good enough for him. Um, I, you know, no matter how hard I tried, um, I wasn't going to be good enough for him. He wouldn't want me. And that was just, you know, the definition of everything I felt growing up. Um, so I knew at that point, like I was getting behind in my grades and stuff and I was, I've always been big in school, like trying to, you know, maintain 4.0. And that was my focus because that was the only time in my life that like, especially my dad, my dad would just shower me with praises. And that was the only emotion I ever got from him was when I succeeded in school. Um, So that was really became really important to me. It goes back to the perfectionism. Um, So my grades were slipping, um, and I was just down and I don't, I really don't know why, but it just occurred to me one day, like you have two paths, like you can go down the path where you start. And I I was in college, so I was legal age to drink and stuff by this time. Um, so it was like, you can go out to the bars with your friends and you know, that alcoholism can be genetic and everything. And you can, you know, play with fire essentially with that, um, or you could take after your mom and, you know, start abusing drugs. And, um, you know, that was a path that I I definitely could take and I was raised with. So I, I seen, you know, um, that when they did that, they didn't have to cope with difficult emotions and feelings, or, you know, I could take the route to where it was a lot more healthy and I could actually discover who I was and my actual purpose in life. Um, I was always athletic growing up, like since I was five years old and all the sports and stuff ended whenever I was after high school, like that just kind of ended. So I was trying to think and I was like, you know, I'm just going to start going to the gym. So, you know, I started going to the gym, um, walking on the trip. I was a cardio bunny for a while. Um, but then I got enough courage to, you know, start trying out weights here and there. 
And I just remember feeling so tiny and weak for so long, along with all the other emotions that like I was ready to feel powerful. Like that was at that point, 20 years of just feeling put down, um, no self-esteem at all, um, disgust at the thought of loving myself because there was nothing lovable about me all those years. And I wanted to feel powerful. And in a way, it goes back to the perfectionism because, you know, perfect people are happy and they're powerful and they're strong. And I wanted to, I wanted to be that to kind of see if, you know, that would, um, open my parents' eyes to see that I was good enough and that I can do, you know, do hard things and whatnot. So I got into lifting a little bit and I just think back to, you know, barely being able to curl five pounds, like the struggle, um, not being able to carry a barbell because it was way too heavy for me. And that was, um, kind of where I, you know, that was definitely the foundation of building from there. Um, did you have friends in the gym that kind of helped you know what to do? I did. So my very first gym, it was a couple females. They were all um, all older because it was mm-hmm. just kind of an older gym. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of people who had been there for many years talking to me, like coming up and introducing themselves. And then, you know, the next day I'd see them at the gym and we'd have some more conversation and and all of that. And the relationships that I built in there they were also supportive and, you know, provided most of them around my parents' age. So I was getting that, that support and that, um, uh, praise from these people that could coincidentally was around my parents' age that I never had gotten before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that made me feel really good. And it made me very excited to go to the gym, even on the days where physically I really didn't want to, but, I would go in there and I would just be showered with support. And it was just something I wasn't familiar with. This is a misconception, I think, that people have about the gym. My experience is similar to yours with not being able to lift anything when I started. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, But people that get into the gym, you realize that that is, a, that is the most supportive place that I've ever experienced. People are the sweetest and nicest, and I know people get intimidated about going to the gym, but there's no reason to be at all. You'll get, right. I mean, you all, every place has those one or two people, but you know, the, for the most part, the gym is, is a very supportive place. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, I was actually just having this conversation with the owner of the gym I go to now the other day, and he was like, you know, a lot of people go to the gym for physical reasons, like, you know, trying to lose weight or gain muscle or, or both, um, just trying to be healthy. But what a lot of people find whenever they start going is that how much of a mental thing it is to go in there and, you know, how much um, that, you know, you start losing weight and start feeling proud of yourself and then you're confident in yourself and then your self-esteem's going up and you're, you're starting to challenge yourself more on, you know, I lifted this weight last week, so let's see if I can do it this, you know, do more this mm-hmm. week. And it's such a mental game um, that people don't expect to have whenever they walk into the gym for maybe the first or just a couple of times. Was this, was this, um, kind of hard for you to switch over from this mentality of like, eat less, eat less, get rid of food, 
kind of, but then you, you have to have a very, you kind of have to have a healthy relationship with food to get into weightlifting and bodybuilding and fitness, you know, which the Nashville Fit Show, for those of you who are listening that don't know, that is, that is like the show here in Nashville for female uh, fitness athletes. So it's a little bit, it's a, it's a change. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that, that, that change and what that was experience was like for you switching from going, you know, one extreme to the other, really. Right. Yeah. And whenever I first started in the gym, um, I definitely wasn't eating what I should be. I actually wasn't eating enough. You know, there, there's one phase of my life that I can, I'll get into that was just starting the foundation. I was really into it for a couple years and then I kind of had a break for a couple years and now I've, I've switched back into um, being able to focus on um, my fitness goals and, and stuff like that. Um, whenever I first started, you know, it was something, it was the strive to be perfect that kicked in as far as wanting to learn more. So I started educating myself more. I would read stuff on lifting. And of course, if you read anything on lifting somehow or another, you're going to end up reading about nutrition and the importance of of that. Um, So it wasn't that I, I wasn't restricting what I was eating. I was very mindful of what I was eating, but as far as like being able to um, eat enough, that you're, you're supposed to be eating on a day, especially with lifting and training and stuff like that. I still wasn't eating enough. And throughout that first phase, I never really did eat enough. I tried to track, but I was still dealing with such like, whenever I stopped using my fitness pal, because my fitness pal controlled my life. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a pretty good period of time where I would want to track and I'm doing it for healthy reasons. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to eat enough. But there was such a, you know, there's such trauma around that, that I also fought to just kind of be free. You know, I wasn't going off the wall and eating like hamburgers and pizza every every single meal. I was still choosing healthy choices and, and stuff like that the majority of the time. But if I wanted a pizza, I would go eat it. You know, like I've spent so many years restricting and controlling that. That at this point, I'm still trying to control it, but in a better way. And also when you're training, if you don't have enough food in you, you feel it during your training. And I was one of those people that was like, I'm not going to go in here and and work my tail off to not see any benefit. You know, Mm -hmm. like I wanted to be able to grow. That's why I was in there. So that kind of fueled that as well. It was difficult that first phase and it lasted from about 19 to 22, really consecutive in the gym. Um, But I had that no rest days mentality. Um, I wasn't eating enough, not on purpose, but I just wasn't eating enough. I wasn't tracking my food because I was still dealing with, you know, the, the trauma behind it. Um, I would do a a whole bunch of cardio, um, just to kind of, you know, I was thinking that I could build and do cardio excessively to where I would, you know, be fit, reach my fitness goals even more. Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of, when I, whenever I started lifting, it was very soon after that, like the athlete in me, like, I don't want to 
do this anymore just to do it. I want to compete. Like mm-hmm. I looked at women in bodybuilding and thought they were just incredible. Like mm-hmm. to be so powerful and so strong. Like I idolized that for, for many years. So whenever I got into lifting and more knowledgeable and stuff like that, a little bit in my journey, it was, it was pretty quick where I was like, okay, I want to do, I want to do this. And I'm very, um, I'm very driven. So like having an actual goal instead of just like, I'm going to the gym to be healthy and to get strong and stuff. Like I needed a goal. I needed a goal to work toward. Mm-hmm. So at the time, you know, I was a broke college kid. I was working part time. I was having to help my parents pay the bills because my dad was always quitting his jobs and stuff like that from all the, you know, stuff that he was dealing with. Um, so there was no money to compete. And for anyone who has never looked into competing or knows about competing, it's a very expensive sport. So it, there just wasn't there, but I still trained like it. I still trained like I was getting ready for a show because right. that was eventually going to happen. So it became, you know, one, number one on my, my, not bucket list, but my, my dreams is to was be able to get. Was that your first show? The National yeah, Fit show? First show? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. it was, it was literally a decade long dream that came true in Nashville last month like gives me chills it's crazy because I've been dreaming of it for so long but life just kind of kept getting in its own way um so fast forward to 2017 um I I knew my husband since childhood me and him grew up in the same area um Johnson City Tennessee and our families knew each other he played baseball with my brother like we've known each other we actually tried to try to date whenever I was in high school but he's four years I mean middle school but he's four years older than I am so he was in high school so when my dad and my brother found out about that they were like absolutely not so that was you know short-lived but we reconnected in 2017 um it was right after his divorce with his previous wife and he had just gotten out of the army and moved to Huntsville, Alabama, which what, which is what brought, you know, both of us here. So, you know, we, we were dating and stuff like that for a while. Eventually I made the move to Huntsville. Um, I had just graduated with my undergrad and was getting ready to start my master's program in the fall of that year. Um, so a lot of stuff happening, you know, um, I was really, I had switched over. I was still in the gym pretty consecutively, but at the time I split my time between the gym, um, work, school, and starting to model. I knew several photographers back in Johnson City that we would collaborate together and um, do a bunch of shoots to get their name out, to get my name out, and really kind of separated that. But then whenever we moved to Huntsville, you know, I don't, I didn't know any photographers. So that kind of got put on the back burner. And then, um, you know, not only did I walk into eventually becoming a fiance and a wife, but I walked into being a bonus mom, you know, whenever I came into my husband's life, his, um, kids were, had just turned one and the other one was three. So they were young, they were babies. Um, so that was really a, a life of four in the best way. But, you know, it was a, I had to adjust to these new roles now. So you work with high school kids now. Do they know that the struggles that you went through with the eating disorder and the, and the different types of trauma, do you ever share that with them or no? 
Um, I share very small bits and not many details just to be sure that I'm not turning their very well-deserved session into mine, but also with high schoolers. And just like when I think back to when I was in high school, you know, like that was the whole thing about becoming a therapist and then eventually working with teenagers is because I wanted to be the person that I needed when I was in high school. And, you know, some might look at that as kind of selfish, but. No, not at all. I, I don't think that's selfish at all. Yeah. Like I, I just didn't have anyone during that time and I want to be that person for them. So mm -hmm. I do like to share just little snapshots of my story with them, even if it's just a, a short, you know, I know what you're dealing with. You know, I struggled with some of that too and kind of moving on just so they can relate because in high school, they're struggling with, you know, they're in identity versus identity confusion state uh, by Eric Erickson and um, they're trying to find who they are, you know, just like I was in high school. I was, you know, um, unfortunately it was more, on, yeah, um, the identity confusion side for me so with them, you know, they respond really well with people who can relate to them. It's not just, oh, this is another adult that thinks she has it all together. Like, no, like my journey has led me here and, you know, let me relate to you a little bit about this. So, yeah, I do share snapshots of my story um, about with, with my kids and my clients. Is so, that something you're going to continue to do is do the, yes. the high school work with high schoolers? It's a very right. needed thing, especially in the culture and society that we're in today. These kids mm -hmm. got a lot on them. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it was really apparent to me when I, whenever I started working with high schoolers, like just how much I knew what I went through as a teenager. So it wasn't one of those things that was like, you know, they're, they're still kids. What do they have to worry about? Like, no, like it, it can be very serious and very traumatic. Yeah. But my, my long-term goal as far as professionally being a therapist is to be able to um, receive my clinical licensure and then open private practice and work with, you know, therapy, like just normal therapy and stuff like that, but specialize in trauma-informed practice as well as eating disorders. Um, there's, whenever you go, not, not a lot of therapists feel comfortable treating people with eating disorders like it's it's definitely a specialization that people you know have to go into and whatnot it's not something that all all therapists feel comfortable doing mm -hmm. and understandably so because it's it's so serious but I, I want to be able to do that and both of those go back to you know being the person that I needed when I was in that stage um, but honestly just the fascination behind both of them too is just you know trauma has everything to do with um, brain development and, you know, how, how we grow and pro progress and how we connect with people, um, attachments and all that. So that's just fascinating to me as well as the psychological side of eating disorders as well, mm -hmm. because it can get, you know, both of those very serious, a common thing with, you know, experiencing trauma and eating disorders, a common thing they have is the high suicide ideations. You know, there's a, you know, that's a very prominent thing in both of those things. Um, so all that just kind of ties in with what I eventually want to work toward and help people with. 
As a culture, do you think there's something that we could do? I know you're bringing awareness to this and that's beautiful and you're helping one-on-one, but as a culture, do you have thoughts as far as what we could do to kind of help kids not, not have to struggle with these things? Um, so when, Ever I was, when I first moved down here, I actually got a job as an early childhood mental health consultant. And what I did at that time, it was a brand new program. Like I, I hit the ground running with it. Um, I didn't create it, but we, it was a statewide program in Alabama that we um, literally like had just started. So we were trying to figure out a lot of things, but essentially the job was to go into licensed child care centers and work with the teachers, work with parents, work with the administration, because in child care centers, it's, you know, birth to typically five. Mm -hmm. Um, So those early years and how crucial they are. And a lot of what we focused on was education, um, trauma-informed education with Mm -hmm. them, um, worked with parents who had kiddos in the child care center with um, challenging behaviors and just um, childhood experiences, you know, those ACEs scores and stuff like that. A lot of them were often in, you know, foster care system and and just dealing with a lot of stuff at the age of two, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of education behind that, I feel like is very important. I do feel like, you know, mental health isn't too big of a taboo thing now like it's it's getting talked about more which is going to be very important to continue that talk and to continue to support and you know keep ourselves knowledgeable and stuff like that um so I, I feel like education um just knowledge knowledge is power in that sense and continue to talk and raise awareness about it is just a few things that I feel like could continue to make such a big difference. What about parents? Like if, if we have teenage daughters, what mm-hmm. are we, what are kind of the things that we should look for to, to maybe see if they're having some kind of struggles like this? As far as trauma and eating disorders go, cause I can relate to those a little more. Um, and thinking back, like, what do I wish my mom would have seen Right, would be the isolation, um, which obviously my mom wasn't capable of seeing that, you know, the, the emotional intelligence just wasn't there with my parents. And, and that's just facts. But I wish she would have seen the isolation. I, I never went out with friends or acquaintances, you know, me and my boyfriend throughout high school, like we never done anything. We sat around like I said, you know, I dealt a lot with um, pretty serious depression and stuff. So that came with the isolation, paying more attention to, you know, what I was eating or lack thereof, um, paying attention to my weight. Um, at mm-hmm. one point, I, you know, I'm five nine in height. And at one point I weighed 97 pounds. Um, and I look back at p- those pictures and uh, I seen one just the other day when I was going through and I was just kind of like, how did no one in my family see this? And at the time, what kind of, you know, fueled that too, going back. But, you know, my family would tell me, like my grandparents, my my brother, my parents, everyone would tell me, you know, you're so beautiful. And it's like, I'm 97 pounds. So this is what you think is beautiful. Like mm. this is kind of, you know, helped. Not only did society kind of help with that, like, making those unrealistic standards for that, but they were, and not intentionally, but they were kind of, you know, 
bringing that confidence in, this is what looks beautiful. Um, and like I said, I never really got a lot of praise from my parents often. So whenever I would get any type of praise, it would really stick. It would hold into my mind. Okay. I need to keep doing this because this is where I'm going to get the love and affection from them. Um, so yeah, I mean, weight, just physical appearance, honestly. Um, and having conversations with them, don't be afraid to have those difficult conversations asking, you know, just keeping in the loop of, you know, how was your day and then breaking that down into, you know, working with them about, you know, sitting down and being like, let's journal together. Like that was something that's been really big with some of my clients is, um, journaling, but also I've, I've asked a couple of them to journal with their parents, you know, ask their parents, interview their parents and say, you know, what is your definition of being successful or what is your definition of being beautiful and seeing what they say and then kind of combat that with, um, you know, this is yours. This is your definition and this is what you think beautiful is and so on and so forth. Um, so a lot of that, there's been a couple that's actually went through with doing it because you have to be very brave, you know, especially in certain situations and depending on the relationship with your parents. Um, it takes a lot of bravery and courage to be able to sit down and kind of have those as the teenager start those difficult conversations and try to connect. But whenever you have parents that don't know how to connect, then oftentimes the kids don't know how to connect. So that's what I'm teaching them. And in order to kind of, you know, help repair that relationship a little bit or make that relationship just a little bit stronger, they're trying to show their parents how to connect through that. Um, that so that's, sounds beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, I was mature for my age and this is the kind of stuff that like, should a child have to go and break their backs in order to show their parents how to connect and improve their emotional intelligence? Maybe, maybe not. It should probably shouldn't be their responsibility. It should be the per the parents' responsibility to teach their kids how to do that. But when you're in a situation where you're trying to make yourself, your situation better, then maybe stepping up and being brave and teaching them can help that relationship because that's what we're wanting to do. We don't want to continue into having this relationship where it's nothing but negativity and fighting and abuse and trauma and all this. So if you can do something in your power, even as a teenager, as simple as going and just kind of being like, you know, what, what do you think success is? Like, what does success look like to you? Or, um, what, what do you think is beautiful? Like, do you think you're beautiful? Um, asking those questions, um, kind of opens their parents' eyes to see the questions that they should have been asking their teenager all along, but it provides the opportunity to have that conversation between the two of them. Yeah. So I, I do want to ask you this. If, if we have like teenagers that are listening and maybe someone's struggling with this kind of thing, like what advice would you give them or what do you have resources and things that you would, you would maybe share with them as far as like to help them through this it's a very trying time. Yeah. I, um, as far as that goes, you know, social supports are huge. Um, whether that's a teacher at school, a guidance counselor, friends, um, 
family, friends. I mean, family falls into that category too. That's finding someone to be able to go to when you're struggling. Like whenever you're having a bad day, having at least one person that you can go to, even if it's just kind of like, hey, here's my bad day. Here's what's been happening. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You know, having someone important enough to you that you and comfortable for you that you can go to and just be able to word vomit what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Um, resources, you know, I didn't read. I feel like both of these these books that I have could potentially go over a teenager's heads, but at the same time, they're pretty easy reads and they're just so full of knowledge about trauma and childhood trauma and stuff that I feel like it would be okay. Um, but definitely for parents, adults, and, and going through this as well, um, The Deepest Well uh, by Nadine Burke Harris. I about said Brooks. Um, this is a good one. It talks a lot about ACEs, and it even has that ACEs um, scoring sheet that I told you about in the back of the book. Um, the important thing that I learned about um, your score is making sure that before you take it, you tell yourself that no matter the score, it doesn't define you. It doesn't, it's not the score that you should like pour into and be like, okay, well, this is why, you know, I'm struggling with this stuff and that I'll never be good enough or be perfect. Like this is just, for me, I took the ACEs survey whenever I was an undergrad And this was one of the things that kind of made me realize that even though my story isn't super severe, like other, you know, people have endured, it's still a story. Like something was wrong Mm -hmm. and just the, the person and the therapist and me and like, cause I knew from an early on, that's kind of what I wanted to do, you know, analyzing why do I feel, why do I feel so unhappy most of the time? You know, like what, what could that be? What was that trigger? What are my triggers? Um, so I took the, um, this, the thing and I scored pretty high on it. Um, but I let that be a foundation of how I can improve. So just mm-hmm. keeping that in mind, whenever you start looking into the adverse childhood experiences and do maybe doing the survey and stuff like that doesn't define what your future could be and who you are. It just yeah. defines your your past. It it shows you mm-hmm. what you've been through. Um, so another I one love is that you said that too. I love I love that you clarified that because that's something that I think a lot of people. It's easy. Human nature says it's really easy for us to fall into like a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, but but when it comes to childhood trauma, it's like you have to rise above that. Yeah. And so I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. Yeah, that was something that honestly I've seen some of my classmates kind of do. Um, and I knew that, you know, that's and working with teenagers too, like I don't wanna promote something that's gonna further discourage you from becoming your best self, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to, you know, it's important that get it gave me a lot of knowledge to be able to, you know honestly be courageous enough to start sharing my story and, and noticing that I do have a story and Mm -hmm. it it has trauma in it. It has, um, you know, adversity in it, but using it as a way to persevere, like this is how I'm going to get past this. 
Um, Another book is The Body Keeps the Score. Um, This is talking a lot about how toxic stress really manifests. It affects our brain, our brain development, um, just our mind, our mindset, and just the body in general. You know, toxic stress, where do, you know, illnesses and diseases come from and all that. And kind of what I mentioned earlier on, um, the fascinating part about the ACEs is that I had my mom take it before. And of course she had a bunch of questions, but, um, we got her score and she scored pretty high on it. Um, this was back in, um, undergrad, but just to know her story growing up Mm. and how much like, because she, she maxed the score. Like she had a lot of childhood trauma. And then at such an early age, she was diagnosed with COPD, a chronic illness. And then, um, she passed away at 51. So a pretty short life and to look back and to know about ACEs and kind of, and then, you know, just how it impacts our whole body in general. Um, Her story kind of was always one of those. It's like this, you know, I'm not saying that this was the only reason why her path ended the way it did, but it, it could be highly coincidental that, you know, she dealt with such, trauma and adversity and stuff all until she got married to my dad but then it restarted with my dad for so many years um so that book the body keeps the score that's been brought up on the podcast by other people as well and I've read that book as well it was a hard read I thought it was a very difficult read too but I'm an empath and it's hard Mm -hmm. for me to hear people's traumas sometimes um (laughs) even this is what I do but I feel like this is this is why it's so important that we share and we talk about because it brings more clarity to people who are going through some of these things they should not have to go through these things alone and I just I think I think it takes people like you and like me and like him who wrote the book um Mm -hmm. to just to just raising awareness about this and and how toxic it truly can be in our bodies if it has mm-hmm. if it's not released if it has no way of being released right and i feel like stress and it it's getting a little better with these resources out there and so many studies that are being done about you know how stress actually affects us um i still feel like at least in my work with adolescents stresses still kind of look like as minor like oh what are you stressed about and like the effects of it and Mm -hmm. holding on to things I use the analogy a bunch with my with my teenagers of imagine that you are climbing up a mountain and you're holding on to a rope and the longer you hold on to it the more your hands are going to start to hurt bleed um, you know, it's gonna, you're gonna start, you know, sweating and all, all the things, but imagine if you're able to just kind of let go of what is holding you back, your hands start to heal and, you know, your body starts to heal and you get in a solemn place, like all holding on to that stress all the time is going to wear and tear you down. Um, so it's much more than just, you know, the, the minor way that sometimes we talk about stress and, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, this friend stressed me out, like, 
you know, it, it's just very lighthearted with some of these teenagers that I've heard. And I, I'm quick to kind of revert back to, but let's talk about that stress because mm-hmm. it really could be impacting you more than you realize it's impacting you. Yeah, for sure. Well, Cynthia, we're like right at an hour, but if there is like one or any closing remarks or one thing that you could kind of leave our listeners with. Very simple. Keep going. Just stay, continue to work on yourself in a way the best you know how to. Journaling, meditation, using those resources, knowledge is power, educating yourself about it and just stay. You know, I have keep going tattooed on my arm as a reminder for myself every day still, um, you know, the, the world truly needs who you were meant to be and the world wants you here and being able to find people in your life or resources in your life that show you that is, is very important. And when, if you can't find those, be that for yourself. Mm -hmm. That is so true. That is so, so true. And, you know, also like if you're listening and you have, you have struggled through these things, I mean, get in contact with us. We can put you in contact with some people, some, maybe some hotlines and things that you can, because you should not have to struggle through these things alone. And uh, especially as a young adult, I feel like, you know, adults, we struggle. It's part of life. We're going to struggle. We're going to have, be faced with trauma stories, things that we've dealt with, but when you're an adolescent or, you know, teenager and you're kind of graduating into the adulthood, it's a really hard, it's a hard journey Mm -hmm. and we've all had to go through it. And, uh, I just, I, you know, my heart is like, I just don't want anyone to struggle through that alone. So reach out to me, reach out to, you know, Cynthia, we can maybe put you in contact with someone, um, or at least be the ear to listen to you. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We can put my Cynthia. contact information in the in the podcast notes too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll definitely put your, we'll, how to get in contact with you through social media mm-hmm. and things. Um, and your, your journey is a magnificent one. I mean, you, you know, you went from really taking something that is very, it's a big struggle with the eating disorder and you've transformed that into power because now you're eating and, and it's, that's, I mean, for anyone who's ever competed or done any kind of fitness where you're now it's like going from eating, just not eating or Mm -hmm. eating and trying to get rid of the food versus eating for purpose and eating to like be sure that I'm putting enough muscle on that I'm getting enough of a certain type of calorie or macro. It's, it's a, it's a journey. So, Mm -hmm. um, at best, maybe people listening can go follow and see your journey and uh, the the changes and stuff that you've made, which has been remarkable. So I really appreciate you and I appreciate all your work, everything you're doing for, you know, for kids, especially because that's huge. So I can't wait to see what the future holds for you. Me too. I'm very excited. I'm very excited to continue to, you know, my team's motto is to get better every day. And that is the top of my list every day, every night is how can I get that much better tomorrow? So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Well, we'll leave our listeners with that. (laughs) Thank you for coming on, Cynthia. I really appreciate it and appreciate you sharing all your, your story and stuff with us today. Thank you. Thank you again very much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Through the Trauma Podcast. If you have found value in this episode or believe in the mission behind what we are doing, please subscribe so that you never miss any future episodes. Also, be sure to check out our Transformation Project at transformationthroughtraumaproject.com, where we help inspirational stories get heard on a larger scale through multiple platforms. If you know someone who can benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Until next time.